I love you guys, and I'm really stoked to be uh, to be here and studying God's Word with you, and we're going to be completing Philippians tonight. We're only going to be reading a few verses. Uh, we're we're going to start out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would be here tonight. We, uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit. God, in, in any moment of weakness for us or for myself, God, I pray that you would come in and you would intercede on our behalf. Above everything, Christ, we pray that you would reign supreme, Lord. Not my name, not our name. Nobody's name, Lord, would be higher than yours. God, that you would be the first and foremost God, that you'd be the utmost in our affections. Lord, we, we worship you in song, but we also worship you in the studying and the realization of your character through your word. Be with us tonight, Holy Spirit, and we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've gone through a four-week journey through the study of Philippians. Uh, the first week, Mark took us through the concept in Philippians chapter 1, the joy when happiness fails and when circumstances fails, the joy is the safety net that catches us. Joy is the safety net because, you know, happiness is great. It's, it's amazing. When you get a job, you are happy and you're supposed to be happy, but when that job leaves you, where does that leave you? Right? The safety net is joy there. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is eternal. And we learn in Philippians chapter 2 that that joy is founded upon nothing, no good works that we do. No good works that we muster up within ourselves. You see, joy, if we base it on the good things that we do, if we base our joy upon our charity towards others or our love towards other people, eventually that joy will crumble as well. Because even in our good deeds, we are imperfect. And we cannot contemplate and we cannot center our joy around the good things we do for God or how much we even love God. That cannot be the epicenter of our joy. The center of our joy is based upon God's love for us and the contemplation of that reality. When we look upon the cross, when we look upon the gospel, that is what gives us joy. Realizing that in all my failures and all my shortcomings, that Christ still adores me enough to die on the cross for me. That is the focus of joy. That is the foundation. And we learned the foundation of joy since it is God's love for us, not our love for him. And then we learned that the function of joy is since now I am all wrapped up in who Christ is. Since I am centering my life around him, it's not that I'm allowing Jesus into my heart. Rather, it's Christ has allowed me into his. I surround myself with him. 
And so now that he is the center of my life, my affections mimic his, uh, his affections, right? What he loves, I love. And that is namely other people, right? Whether, no matter how difficult they are. And then in Philippians chapter 3, last week, Pastor Mark took us through, knowing about Christ is different than knowing Christ, right? The entire world, in some way, shape, or form, knows about Jesus. Not everyone knows Jesus. There's a profound difference. There's an intimacy that is required for joy. There's an intimacy that is required in order to have a thriving life with God. You can't just know about him. You can't just mentally understand who he is, nor can you just serve him. Pastor Mark, he took us through the metaphor that, that we are to love God with our head, our heart, and our hands. Meaning if, that we, if we simply understand him with our minds, but we do not do anything with our hands, we become very legalistic, we become very... Uh, actually, sorry, we become liberal. We become very liberal in our faith, very flippant with our faith because we know Christ, but we don't let it translate into our actions. If we only love him with our hands, but not with our heads or our hearts, we become legalistic. We become very works-based. And so, and so balancing and, and meeting and matching the love that Christ has for us with our love for his, it, it, it becomes a matter of the head, the heart, and the hands. And now we're here in Philippians chapter 4. And Paul here, knowing, knowing the circumstances that the everyday Christian goes through, knowing the circumstances that everyday people go through, knowing that hard times hit, hard times come, he says right here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, but when have you ever been going through a hard time and you've automatically felt better because someone's like, hey, cheer up, you know? When have you ever been in just deep depression and, and self-pity and a friend just pats you on the back and is like, hey, it's going to be okay. That rarely helps, right? Yeah, you know in your head, yeah, maybe one day it will be okay. But as of right now, someone patting you on the back and saying, hey, it's all right, it doesn't make it all right, Right? And so it's almost annoying if, if Paul continually says, hey, cheer up, have joy, have joy, have joy. It almost gets annoying. He's saying, cheer up, right? rejoice in the Lord always. He says, cheer up. And then he says again, I say rejoice. He's like, no, really, cheer up, it's okay, right? Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But what if I don't want it, Right? We've learned about the foundation of joy. We've learned about the function of joy. We've learned that it comes from accepting and contemplating what God has done for us. But what happens when we really just don't want to? We don't want to feel joy. You see, because there are generally three types of reaction to this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, three, three types of reactions generally to every part of Scripture where people say, oh, praise the Lord, yeah, for sure, on to the next verse, right? Where we take it, we really don't meditate on it because it just sounds like one of those fluffy Christian things, right? And there are a lot of those. Can we be real, you know? There's a lot of things in our faith that just seem fluffy but practically don't make sense, right? Rejoicing in trials, being happy even when others aren't. Serving others, even though they're nasty to you. Yeah, it sounds great. Sounds awesome. Sounds fluffy. But you don't want to, right? 
We don't want to do these things. So some people will say, oh yeah, praise the Lord, for sure. You know, flop one of those other, you know, super pink verses, right? And then they go to the next, right? And then some people say, yeah, Paul, yeah, rejoice in the Lord always. But Paul obviously doesn't know what I'm going through right now. So yeah, this verse may apply to those who have something to rejoice about, but I really don't have anything to rejoice about. I'm going to continue on, find something that actually helps me. And some people will honestly say, yeah, I agree that I should be rejoicing, but how do I rejoice? I know that rejoicing comes from contemplating Jesus, and you know, I know that joy is not the same as happiness, and that happiness is circumstantial, and it's okay if I don't have happiness, but how do I have joy? And so it would, be, it would be beneficial to read on when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and then we read on, but then he says, be anxious for nothing. Which seems worse, because not only is he now saying, hey, cheer up, now he's saying, hey, don't stress out. And, and we know that, you know, just because someone tells us to cheer up doesn't mean we're going to cheer up. And we also know that just someone says chill out doesn't mean we're going to chill out, right? Now, I'm the only one, I guess. Just because someone says, don't be scared, don't be frustrated, don't be anxious, doesn't mean it works that way. We're allowed to be real in here, right? It's church. It's the one place we should be real. Just because someone tells you, hey, don't be anxious, just because the Bible says, don't be anxious, right? It doesn't make you better, right? My mind goes to this real place. My mind goes to this real place in Christianity where I'm like, all right, my... I don't, I feel anxious, all right? I, 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 I feel anxious, and just because you tell me to, to not be anxious for anything, just because you tell me to stop stressing out, just because you tell me to chill out, doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But apparently, that's what the good Christian does. Apparently, the good Christian is not supposed to feel stress, not supposed to feel anxiety. Apparently, the good Christian, he's, he's supposed to be happy all the time. She's supposed to be always rejoicing and always praise the Lord, right? So I, I guess I'm not allowed to feel frustration, anger. I guess I'm not allowed to feel depression. I guess I'm not allowed to feel sadness and bring that in. So, man, uh, so maybe I'm just going to have to fake it till I make it, I guess. Have you ever heard that? Fake it till you make it? So... It's, it's, it's a nice idea, but it's so wrong, right? So twisted. It's good practically in some circumstances, right? But in a godly sense, faking it till you make it doesn't work. In a biblical sense, just trying it out and just putting on a mask until it finally becomes a reality for you, I'm, I'm just telling you, it doesn't. It's not how it works. You can't just fake it till you make it. So, though we feel empty inside, or anxious, or angry, or mad, or sad, full of doubt, we can't show it, because good Christians are always happy. Good Christians are supposed to go to Bible studies with a smile on their face. Good Christians are supposed to serve and not complain. Then it says this, it says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So not only are we not allowed to be anxious, we're supposed to be happy all the time, but now you have to always pray and you have to always be thankful. Right? Always pray, always be thankful. It seems as though 
in some circumstances, the Bible is just trying to pile all these things that we don't really feel on top of us. That's how it feels sometimes. Bow your head, raise your hands in worship, fake it. Right? Fake it. Even though you don't feel it, even though the words that you're singing you really don't care about, that's what Christians are supposed to do. Right? Even though you don't love those kids in the, in the kids' ministry that you're ministering to, even though you don't want to talk to that person about Christ, you've got to do it. Right? It doesn't matter how you feel. That's what a good Christian does. Fake it. So while we practice these things, we end up becoming more and more anxious, right? <laughs> right? As, as we pile in, all right, I always have to be happy. Okay, I can never be anxious. I can't be stressed out. Okay, all right, so now I have to always be thankful for things, and I have to always pray, and I have to always read my Bible. This makes us more anxious people, right? It makes us more pent up, right? That's where you get the stereotype of just this classic anal Christian on TV, that's where, that's where it comes from. It comes from someone who has faked it for so long that they're so stressed out and angry that they just become uptight suits, right? That's what happens when people aren't real before God, when people aren't real before other people. That's what happens. They become the stereotype that the world believes we are, right? That's how it happens, guys. When Christians refuse to be real with themselves, Refuse to face the hard things. That's when it happens. That's when legalism sets in. That's when a stiffness sets in. Because I think if some of us were being honest, maybe not all of us, but me, myself, endless and nonstop joy is some sort of enigma. Endless, nonstop joy. It's an abstract idea that sounds awesome but doesn't seem practical. Always being joyful okay, I know I'm supposed to be with Jesus all the time and I know I'm supposed to have fellowship with him and I'm supposed to be one with him, but always rejoicing? Always rejoicing in my circumstances? Always rejoicing in in, in my relationships? Always rejoicing in my job? Always rejoicing? Sooner or later, life catches us by surprise and no amount of cheer up is going to make you rejoice, right? Stuff happens. So we try to ignore the problems in order to have this false sense of faith. And once again, this may not be you, but it's definitely me. It's definitely me. We could also dwell on the bad things in life and let it consume our thoughts and let it define who we are, right? So some people ignore their problems altogether. Some people give way too much weight to their problems and allow it to define them. Or we could take a look right back at Philippians 4.4 again. I want you to go back to it. I want you to go back. It's a Bible study, so like, you know, keep your Bibles open. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. When we see that God commands us to rejoice, because it is a command, when we see that God commands us to rejoice, we automatically look at our circumstances and say, oh, but the bills, but the kids, but the marriage, but my health, but my job, but my school, I, I, I can't rejoice right now in these things. Good. You're not supposed to rejoice in them. It says rejoice in the Lord. 
I, 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 I've read this passage for so long that I just kind of grazed over it for so long. I grazed over it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. All right, joy. I'm supposed to have it. Christians are supposed to have joy. I'm supposed to be joyful. That's a good thing. Right on, right? And then something bad happens. I'm like, all right, uh, okay. Got to have joy still. It isn't that bad. Got to look at the bright side. Got to find the positive in things, yeah? That's not what God is saying. That's not what Paul's trying to articulate here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, man. So not only is, is God the source of our joy, but he's the object of our joy. Yeah, we all know that joy comes from the Lord, but man, you don't always. It, do you know what? And, and here's the thing. My, my, my grandmother, a couple, a couple months ago, a few months ago, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. And, and I called her. And the first thing I told my grandma, my grandma, this sucks. And she's like, it does suck. Thank you. It does suck. Everyone's been telling me it's going to be okay. Everyone's been telling me that, oh, that the Lord has a plan. Everyone's been telling me that I'm going to be healed. And, and you're the first one to say. My, my grandma has tons of friends. And all her family called her. I was the first one to tell her, Grandma, this sucks. She, she doesn't have to rejoice in her circumstances like that. It can suck. It can be not okay. Because things, as we've studied before, they're not always good. People will fail. Circumstances will fail. Cancer wasn't her fault. She got it. It's allowed to suck. I want to give you guys that freedom. Life is sometimes, it's allowed to not be okay. That's okay. Because here's the thing. We're not supposed to rejoice in these things. We rejoice in the Lord. I said, Grandma, this sucks, but God is so good. He loves you. I made her cry. She was so happy. That actually made her joyful, right? Every, Every type of comfort everyone was trying to tell her, right, just made her slip into a greater depression, right? Because do you know what? The words that people were trying to comfort her with weren't matching her circumstances, right? Hey, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. You're going to be healed. God is bigger than this, right? And, and my grandma's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, future, maybe in the future, yeah, I'll, I'll be healed. But right now, I have cancer. It sucks right now. But God is good right now, too. God still loves her right now, right? And so we need to have this type of perspective that, man, yeah, things, they fail in, 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 in jobs and circumstances and marriages and relationships and our, everything around us. Yeah, we don't always have to rejoice in those things, but God is always good. Christ had joy on the cross. You know that? And so he definitely didn't have joy. Well, like he wasn't rejoicing. Ah, give me another nail, right? Beat me again. Rip out my hair and not just my beard. 
right? He didn't rejoice in that. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Christ on the cross? What was that joy? It certainly wasn't circumstances. It certainly wasn't the circumstance he was in, right? He was being crucified. Can we say that sucks? Yeah, we could say that sucks. Really harsh in Jesus' mellow, probably. He didn't have joy in his circumstances. It was the anticipation of sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. That was the joy set before, before him. That's how he endured the cross. He said this, as it declares in, in Corinthians, it said this is but a momentary and light affliction that compared to the eternal weight of glory doesn't matter. I am going to sit at the right hand of my God. I'm going to once again be in intimacy with him, in oneness with God. I'm going to be able to lead all these people to the Lord. I cannot wait to die for all of mankind's sins so that I could take all of them and we could all go and enjoy God's presence together. So when Paul tells us to rejoice, he's not telling us to ignore our problems and be happy. He's not telling you to be happy that you are going through a rough time. He's telling you to look at Jesus and rejoice in him. And as Pastor Pastor Mark said this last week, I said it the week before, he said it the week before that. Joy is about being with Jesus. It's all about being with Jesus. We're not going to give you some four-step process to finding joy. We're not going to put out the bullet points for you on how to have a thriving and amazing life. We're simply going to tell you that you need to sit down at the feet of Christ. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 6. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So God is not saying that the formula of joy is to stop feeling anxious and ignore the issues that surround you. You know what I mean? He's not saying, all right, time to feel joy. If you want to feel joy, first off, you need to stop feeling anxious Okay, secondly, you need to start praying more. That's not what Paul's saying, right? Because you could try these things, but no amount of anything is going to make you stop feeling anxious. He's not telling you to stop feeling anxious, ignore the issues that surround you, and only think happy thoughts. It's not a mind over matter type of thing. He was saying that the bad things do exist. Trials will happen. They do happen. Notice how he says, he says, make your request known to God. And notice how he doesn't say, make your request known to God and God will make the problems disappear. He says, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. First Peter 5, 6-7, as I said before, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he, in the proper time, he may exalt you. In the proper time. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Anxiousness and restlessness are the robbers of joy. 
Some of you know this all too well. The restlessness you have, the anxiousness you experience, the anxiety that overwhelms you, the frustration that you experience. These things rob your joy. They suck the life out of you. How do we combat these things? How do we, how do we get rid of them? It says, with prayer and supplication, bringing these anxieties before the Lord and relinquishing control. What does prayer and surrender accomplish? Prayer and surrender, coming before the Lord with supplications, I'm, I'm going to be so just honest with you. And I said this this morning that, you know, some people come to us pastors and, and they think we have some sort of magic wand that fixes everything. Like they can bring our, their problems to us and, oh yeah, of course, I have a greater connection with God than anyone. Let, let me, you know, make this wish list to him and he does everything I ask anyway, so let me just get rid of all your problems for you. Yeah, right? I wish, I wish I could do that. I wish prayer and supplication sometimes it would would just make all my problems disappear that if I just prayed that this difficult person or I prayed that this broken relationship or I, 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 I prayed that this difficult circumstance would just disappear and then poof, disappear. But do you know what? That's a really illogical way of thinking because more than just you exists. And if God just made your tough circumstance disappear, think of all of the pieces that he would also have to make disappear around you. Think of how many people would be hurt. Right? Because, oh man, if if this difficult circumstance, if I want that out of my life and God just made it disappear, well, he's going to have to make that person go somewhere else, but you can hurt somebody else, but you can hurt somebody else, right? Just a, a chain of bad bad things that will happen because we decided to be selfish, right? Uh, So I I praise the Lord that he doesn't answer prayers like that. It would make him a very, very, it would make him a very fickle and playing favorites God, wouldn't it? If you just listen to some people's prayers, no matter what type of effect it had on others. And so God doesn't operate that way. What does prayer and surrender accomplish then? It doesn't say that situations will cease to vex you. It doesn't say that trials all of a sudden will disperse and avoid you at all costs. It doesn't say that the enemy will stop attacking you. Oh, nope, he prayed. <laughs> I'll leave you alone, right? <laughs> that's, not, that's not how it works, right? That's not what happens, No. Why should circumstances that we don't like avoid us? Did they do that to Jesus? Why should difficulty pass over us and our lives should be the cushy ones? Was that how it was for our Savior? The man that we claim to follow, the God that we claim to worship, did harsh times and difficulties, were they absent in his life? No. No. So why should I expect them to be absent in mine? It says that prayer and making a request known to God will bring about peace. Peace. What kind of peace? Absence of trial, temptation, fear, and anxiety? Absent of all things bad, that type of peace? The type of peace that everyone loves to talk about but nobody knows how to get? 
The type of peace where everyone is in harmony and the type of peace where all circumstances seem to work out in my favor. My favor. The type of peace where everything goes my way. No. Do you know why? That's a peace I can understand. That's a peace that I get. I understand that. I understand the whole concept of having no conflict. No temptation around me, no trials around me. I can quantify that in my head. I understand that. It says, though, that God will, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. <laughs> God purposefully gives you a peace that you can't quantify in your head. He purposefully wants to give you a peace that you don't get. That sucks. (laughs) He he wants to give you a peace that you don't understand. It surpasses you being able to understand it and cognitively just make sense of it. He says purposefully that he's going to give you a peace that you cannot quantify. Why? Does he want to complicate life for us? Does he want to give something that complicates our life? Give something that we can't even possibly understand. Listen, peace must surpass our understanding. It has to. God is so brilliant. He is so brilliant. This peace must surpass our understanding. It must. We cannot understand the peace God gives us. God wants to simplify it for us. You see, he's not complicating it for us. Just because we can't understand doesn't mean he's trying to complicate and he's, he's showing off his higher knowledge, right? Like, oh, I get it, you don't, right? He's not saying that. He's not mocking us in this manner. He's giving, he wants to give us a peace that we can't understand. Because as I said before, things that we can formulate are things that we can complicate. Things that we can formulate are things that we can complicate. If God gave us a 10-step process towards joy, we would just try to find out how to skip steps 9 and 10, right? If God gave us us an exact four-step process to a thriving and awesome life, if he just gave us a four-step process, we would try to skip processes 2 and 3, right? We would try to make it easier for ourselves, even though God made it abundantly easy. I gave you four, four rules, right, that you have to follow to experience joy. Go. We would be like, yeah, I get one. Two, I think I could work around and kind of merge it with three and then just go straight to four, right? Because think about this in the Garden of Eden. God only gave one thing. Don't eat the fruit. And you'll be good. What did we do? Ate the fruit, right? Right? So we've, we've already proven that us as mankind, anything that we can, we, we, we can't just be given this, this exact step and this exact rule. This is how you do it. God has to give us something that we cannot understand. And I love that about God. I love that. He simplifies it for us. He totally simplifies it for us. Do you know why? Because God removes the how of joy and goes straight to the who of joy. He removes completely, this is how you get joy, and he just tells you who you need to be with in order to receive joy. He removes the how, he goes straight to the who. Forget about, okay, this is how I need to be and live a happier life, this is what I need to do in order to get this. 
We've said it. This is the fourth week we'll say it. Being with Jesus is the root of joy. Sitting down and being known by him. And some of you might, you might have a really hard time just being known by God and knowing God in a really intimate way. And I'll tell you, that might be because you're not being very real in front of him. You're still in this form of kind of just this pseudo piety, right? This fakeness, like, oh, I have to pray, I have to read my Bible. If it's a have to read your Bible, you're not doing it right. If it's I have to pray, you're not doing it right. It's about sitting down. And I'm not just saying read your Bible. It's about sitting down and, you know what, you're not always going to feel it, but it's about sitting down and just, this is who I am, God. These are all my struggles. These are, these are all my burdens, all my temptations, everything right here before you. This is everything. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to just, Lord, bless this food to my body. Thank you. Amen. Right? Being real, guys. It says right here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He removes the how, goes to the who, and that who is Jesus Christ. The one who loves you so much in order to make the ultimate sacrifice. You know, in Isaiah chapter 11, in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah declares that there's, there's this joy, there's this awaiting of joy that's impossible to attain. But Isaiah talks about hope, and this is thousands of years before Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus, he's, he says, it's impossible, but there is coming a day, the root of Jesse and the city of Bethlehem. Onto us, a child is born. Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, predicted the exact place Christ would be born, the exact way he would be born, exactly what would happen, exactly what he would do. And it happened hundreds of years later to the date. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 12, the next chapter, he's talking about how amazing it's going to be when the Christ finally comes. And he says in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And he says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The world is constantly changing. Cultures seem to be rising and falling faster than we can keep up, right? See, cultures used to change at a much slower pace, but with the rise of technology and media and globalization, cultures change like that, like that. They're constantly, constantly changing. Norms are constantly changing. Fads are constantly changing. Products are constantly changing. Relationships between countries changing in a blink of an eye. We try and latch on to the American dream sometimes, only to find out that the American dream isn't what it used to be. 
and the American dream in five years isn't going to be the same thing it was today. You know what I mean? It's never going to be that way. You see, friends change, families change, loved ones leave your life just as much as they entered into it. Everything changes. One thing that may not seem to change is the addiction that you have. One thing that may not seem to change is the chip that you just can't get off your shoulder, your marriage that seems to be getting worse and worse. Something may be happening, and things are constantly changing around you. Or maybe it's you. You just let yourself down. You're always continually beating yourself up, letting yourself down, holding yourself to a different standard than you should be. Maybe people are always letting you down. Your loved ones, the ones you care about, the ones you put your trust in, they're constantly and continually just letting you down. Then God comes into the scene. And he says, I love you. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to give you a life that you will experience new things for the rest of eternity. Your life will be a constant adventure with me. And while you're on this earth, it's going to be full of valleys and it's going to be full of plateaus and it's going to be full of hills that you climb and it's going to be full of hills that you fall down as well. But it's going to be an adventure. And at the end of it all, you're going to have salvation where you get to come and you get to be in my presence where there is no crying, there's no tears, no pain, no suffering. And guys, that suffering, guys, it's not something God's bribing us with, Okay? I, I, we need to make that really clear because I was, I was interviewed just this last semester because uh, a, a student that, you know, a, a friend of mine that's also a student at Channel Islands, he wanted to interview me for a paper he was doing because he knew how much I love Jesus, right? And he wanted to pick my brains about the Christian faith. And what he was alluding to was the fact that Christians only like the idea of heaven because they get to see their loved ones at the end of all of it. They don't want to feel pain anymore. They want to escape everything, Right, And so he was alluding to the fact that Christians are just being bribed into the afterlife. I'll tell you this. And I, I don't want to get too, you know, I, I, I don't want to inspire any hatred for any other religions in here. Does that make sense? Right? Because I feel like there's too much of that in the Christian faith. Right? And it needs to stop. Stop hating other religions. Start being lights to them, okay? But, but one thing is, you know, if, if you look at Islam, right? If you look at Islam, the, the one thing that they're working for their entire lives is the fact that when they die, if they have done enough good things, that they'll get rivers of wine, they'll get 70 virgins, they'll get jewels. Their God's bribing them with the world, Their God isn't good enough. So he has to say, here's things, here's stuff that I'm going to give you, right? Their God isn't sufficient enough, right? So he has to say, come, I'll give you things that are kind of like what you already have here, but just shinier, right? So he's saying, hey, come to me and I'll give you all of these fancy things. Do you know what our God does? He says, guess what? If you live your life and you serve me and you want to be with me here on this world, do you know what you get at the end of all of it? Me. Our God's sufficient enough. He doesn't bribe us with anything. He says, do you know why there's no tears? Do you know why there's no crying? There's no pain? There's no suffering? 
Because in my presence is the fullness of joy. And he's saying, you don't have to wait for that. Heaven begins the day you accept Jesus Christ. Yeah, there'll be pain still on this earth. But in God's presence is the fullness of joy. And as it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Here's, I'm always skeptical of the person that receives Christ and then is automatically just causing problems, you know? Or, or is automatically just like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I received Jesus. I'm not going to hell and stuff, but like, I don't know if this whole church thing's for me, you know? I'm always skeptical of those people because, you know what? What other possible way is there to receive salvation besides utter joy? Yeah, later on, you're going to have suffering. You're going to have some sort of issue that arises up that'll cause you to doubt, but that'll cause you to press in the Lord more. But at the end of the day, what other response is there to the God of the universe creating everything? You rebelling against him saying, don't worry, I love you anyways. I'm going to come down. I'm going to take on all the filthiness, all the punishment you deserved. You know what? I'm going to die for you because I love you that much. I'm going to raise again so you will have a life eternal and you and I are going to walk in fellowship and in unity. What type of person would look at something like that and be like, cool, thanks. Just put it in their pocket for later, right? Like that kid that got socks on Christmas, you know? Like we we look at salvation like, yeah, thanks, grandma. (laughs) What other response is there to God's salvation besides joy? There's no other there's no other response. Joy, utter and complete joy. And guys, I, I was talking about this in the earlier service as well. You know, a, a, a few, like a, a year ago, I experienced some really heavy trials, feeling of rejection, feeling of just uh, not being loved and just all of these things. You know, I was just overwhelmed with well, a really intense trial. And at the end of the day, no one's pat on the back made me feel better. No one's good advice made me feel better. No one's saying, oh man, cheer up, made me feel better. No amount of serving in the church, no amount of preaching, no amount of anything made me feel better. Do you know what made me feel better? As I was reading in my journal from a year ago, I was reading in my journal and I could see just me, you could see the parts of the pages where I was just crying. And and the only thing that made me well up with joy, tears of joy, was the fact that God was just saying, I love you. I love you. And I allowed this to happen to you. I allowed all of this to happen to you. Because I can see things you can't. I care about you too much to allow you to stray and veer off. I need you to keep you. I need to keep you by my side. I love you. I died for you. I love you no matter what you do, no matter what anyone's ever done to you, no matter how much rejection you felt in the past. I love you. I care for you. Man, that made me well up with so much joy. And just a few weeks ago, just experiencing so much shame with myself. Guys, you know, sometimes God just makes you so hyper-aware of your sins and your shortcomings. 
You wish you could just continue on with arrogance, I mean, ignorance, right? You just wish you could not know about your issues and not know about your flaws, right? Just, just, I just want to ignore it. Everyone else could know my, my sins and my flaws. If I don't know it, I'm going to be happy. Ignorance is bliss, right? But God just made me so hyper aware of my sins and my shortcomings and my flaws. And I just felt terrible and vulnerable and naked. I just felt so exposed. Still do from time to time. God just made me so aware of certain sins that I have in my life, of pride, of arrogance. Do you know what made me feel better? It was right before I was actually preaching here a couple weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. Some of you were here. What you didn't know is that I was, I was sitting there and I was worshiping and I was just feeling terrible about myself. Not worthy. Sinful. Right? And God, in that moment, he's just like, Zach, I love you anyways. I love you anyways. And that's what wells you up with joy, guys. And being able to bring that that burden to the Lord, that's freedom. There's freedom there. There's freedom in being real and honest before Jesus. There's an abundance of just liberty you feel in that. Being so incredibly real, contemplating God's saving love for me brought me back from a place of total and complete shame. David, in the midst of most of his trial and persecution, uh, David, you know, as we know, he was not short of trials, right? And this specific psalm I'm about to read to you was written while he was deep in a cave while people were seeking to kill him. This was right after, this was, this was right after he had just made tons of victories against the Philistine army. The story of David and Goliath had already happened. Everybody loves him. Now all of a sudden, everyone's trying to kill him. With nothing that he did, people are just jealous of him, so they pursued him, Right? And so he's stuck and he's in a cave, he's alone and he's afraid. And he says right here in Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. People want this solution, a formula of how to be happy. But do you know what? They overcomplicate things. Sin comes in and it overcomplicates things. We try to think about how to be happy, how to receive joy, so we want to give people good advice. Do you know what the best advice I can give you? And I, you know, I'm just going to keep repeating myself and repeating myself. Sit with Jesus. He's listening to you. He's waiting to hear from you. Journal with him. Pray with him. Read your Bible. Whatever it takes, go take a walk. Get rid of all the noise. Sit before him and seek him. David experienced isolation because David was surrounded by people's praise. David was surrounded by people just constantly telling him how amazing he was. And God said, do you know what? He's going to be a king that changes the world. 
he can't have all this. I need to take him from that really quick and put him here in the cave. Too many voices here. I want him in a place where only my voice reigns supreme. That's what God may be doing with you in your trial right now. Do you know what? world's too loud. The world's way too loud right now. I'm going to make him lonely for a second. That way he'll only hear my voice. That way she'll only hear me. Only if you seek him though, right? Don't overcomplicate things. Dane sent me a text the other day. He sent Keith and Chris and I. He sent, he sent us a text and it was just simply 2 Corinthians 11.3 and it really, really ministered to my heart where he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The simple and pure devotion to Christ. You see... It may be a little frustrating or a little like, ah, Pastor Mark and Pastor Zach keep repeating themselves, but do you know what? We're just trying to tell you what Paul is telling you here. We're just afraid that sometimes life gets too noisy and we need to tell you again that you need to get back to the simple and pure devotion to Christ, which is loving him and loving others like he loves you. The simple and pure devotion to Christ. It says, finally, brethren, in verse 8 in Philippians chapter 4, we'll close here. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. If we are able to let go of our anxieties, if we're able to sacrifice our anxieties and put our our burdens and cast our cares at the foot of the cross and say, God, all of these things are happening to me. It really, really sucks. Here it is. Here it is. I'm not ignoring it. I'm facing it. Here it is. Your God, do something about it. And that will lift you up from your anxieties knowing that God is in control and it will give you a new perspective of being able to meditate and dwell on the things that are just, on the things that are pure, on the things that are lovely, things that are of good report and things that are virtuous and praiseworthy. Cast your cares upon the Lord, but then also contemplate the abundant blessings that he's given you. Guys, everyone has a shadow that they deal with. I had to text Chris the other day and just tell him my shadow. Tell him the insecurities that I, that I face and how it manifests itself in my sins and the things that I commit. I had to be honest with him and I had to be honest before God first and tell him, here's my shadow. Here's, here's the things that I struggle with. Here's why I'm like this, and here's the root of it. And that self-reflection, guys, will cause you to cast the cares that are necessary upon the Lord. But then it'll also cause you, since you're not dwelling on these things anymore, you finally become self-aware. You're starting to go towards an emotionally healthy life, which leads to a spiritually healthy life. 
where you can finally say joy does not come from ignoring your problems, but it simply comes from focusing on the cross. And so tonight we're going to take communion and we're going to we're going to worship. And I want to encourage you guys that as, as you take communion, take it properly. It's not something that we just do as Christians. It's not, and do you know what? If, if to you it's just something that church does, then don't take it. Don't take it. But what it is for us is, is we're, we're looking at the bread, and God said, Christ said at the Last Supper, he said, this is my body that has been broken for you. I'm going to suffer, is what he's saying. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer for you right? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to take on the sins. All the wrath is going to be poured out on me. All your baggage, all the bad things that have been committed against you and all the bad things you've committed against others. And guess what? Sin, it's not just the bad things you do. It's the good things that you refuse to do. We're also going to have to give an account to God for that. And God says, I'm going to take that. And then he says, he, he says this, is my, this is my blood that is shed for you. And it's a metaphor, the wine that he passed to his disciples. He says, my, my, remember this, drink this and remember my blood. And, and as, as I said before, it's not a creepy Christian thing, you know, eating the body and drinking the blood. It's like all weird, right? Cultish. It's, it's the fact that our blood is, it's the life force that's pumped in our veins, Right? It's what sustains us, pumping through our hearts. And what sustains us and the things that we give our lives to and the things that, that we, we're giving our attention and our affections to, guys, these are bad things sometimes or good things that shouldn't be there. And Christ, he's the only one who lived a life where his entire heartbeat was for the beat of God. And so when he says, take my blood, he's saying, take upon my affections, take upon my life. And so he says, this is my covenant, take and drink of it. And in doing so, you're going to walk a life with me. It's not going to be perfect. You are going to experience struggles. I'm not going to throw fluff your way and say all the problems are going to go away. I am going to tell you this. I am going to tell you you're going to experience so much joy. Because you have what nobody else has, which is a a relationship with the creator God of the universe. Who when bad things are happening and when struggles are occurring, he's going to be able to show you that there's value in it. There's purpose behind it. It's not pointless. There's things to be learned. There's places to grow in your life. And God's going to show you that as you take communion, identify he was broken so you don't have to be and then we're going to take upon his life his resurrection his blood amen lord uh, we worship you and we praise you not because of some religious devotion we have to you god but simply because you have loved us so much that we want to respond in some sort of way as david declared he says so i have looked upon the sanctuary beholding your power and glory Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips shall praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands 
So God, we uh, because of your love and because you are amazing and awe-inspiring and majestic, because you are loving and satisfactory in every way, we're going to lift our hands to you. We're going to praise you. Not because life is good all the time, but because you are good all the time. And you love us and there's purpose behind everything that you do. Help us trust in you. Help us and relieve us of our anxieties and our fears as we lay it at your feet tonight as we worship you. May these words be more than fun words that we sing to a nice melody. May these be words that penetrate our heart and that we actually mean when we sing them. So we love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.